Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. So welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. We have a unique episode today where we have an interview with an investor, a VC, Alana Man, Cultivation Capital, but there's a lot more there than you're going to get out of the name and the fun, and we're going to get into that more. But first, we're going to start where we normally do, which is rewinding the clock back to childhood. So Alana, welcome into the studio and describe for us and everybody listening who you were as a child and if that childhood version of you would be friends with you today. Yeah, of course. And thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So who I was as a child is very different than how I am now. I think as a child, I was very creative. I would write down like everything I wanted to do when I grew up and it was all performing arts related. Like people find this very difficult to believe, but like I used to sing, I used to dance, I used to draw like all the time. And so I used to be like this very deeply, like still very extroverted, but like very creative person and always was excited about creative pursuits. So when I was younger, I like toured Europe for the first time, like in a choir, an opera choir. And, you know, I had like all my big accomplishments, like first half of my life been creativity related. And so I think like when I was younger, if someone told me like, hey, you'd be working in finance. I probably wouldn't have believed them. I would have not have seen like a ton of representation of people like me in that industry to even think that that could be a path for me. So I think that's like one thing a lot of times when I think about my childhood, I'm like, this is so different um, from anything I could have imagined in terms of path and like, you know, forward trajectory. But to that end, I think, you know, childhood version of me would still be friends with me because I think to some degree, I'm doing this very differently than how it's been done. And I think what, you know, sometimes what impresses me the most about just how I navigate and move through venture is I, you know, sometimes will be bold and will do things differently and audaciously in ways that, you know, childhood me would be proud of and excited about. But yeah, it's definitely, you know, the piece of, you know, growing up, like always thinking I'd do creative stuff and then, you know, working in fashion and now, you know, finance. I don't think I could have ever anticipated that path. That's good. And we want to get into what makes you different here in a sec, but let's slow down and stay here for a little bit, because if someone looks at your LinkedIn, they're going to see an interesting educational background as well. And this may be a question that makes you comfortable or uncomfortable, but I do want you to speak to a little bit more about childhood you and growing up where you did and how that impacted how you view the world and how you view it now and what you do. I think, yeah, my educational background definitely changed like my perspective of the paths that I saw for myself. So when I was younger, I was in public school probably until like sixth grade. And then my mom put me in private school for middle school. And I think that kind of consequence of like, wow, this is like really what being successful looks like. You know, seeing all of, you know, these really affluent families just like thriving in their best lives. I think that kind of changed my perspective and like, oh, I really need to learn business. I need to you know, I see myself developing some like core business acumen. And then like that kind of set the path for like high school and, you know, going to boarding school and boarding school kind of just a little bit rocked my world. Like I'm, people never believe this about me, but I'm from a very small town, like very middle-class small town. No one ever leaves my town. When I was telling them I was going to boarding school, they had no idea what that was. They thought I was going to military school. And then when I told them I was going to Vanderbilt, they were like, what is that? Like, we don't even know what that is. And so I think like to some degree, like my educational background kind of paved the way for me to start seeing things that I could have a different path. You know, the only outcome for, you know, being successful didn't have to come from like a creative path there, you know, obviously is a whole world of business and different components of finance. But yeah, no, I think when I was growing up, someone told me like, even anything related to finance, I wouldn't have saw that path at all until probably like the process of, you know, going to boarding school, going to Vanderbilt and like starting to see like, hey, these are different outlets for like what success could look like. That's excellent and very relatable because I feel like it's common in our community to have conversations about navigating, okay, I've been in this environment, this is something new, now what does it mean for me and how does it impact my identity? So we're going to stay on the topic of earlier and first and now go into kind of what got you started. So 
if you can talk about your earliest experiences with investing, with innovation, if that included technology, where did you sort of get your start? What's the earliest experience that you can think of? Yeah, I think for me, probably it was college. And it was interesting because I feel like Vanderbilt like, didn't really have any sort of like business major or like any kind of big like entrepreneurship focus, but they did have a few different classes like spread out. So they had some of the engineering school, they had some of the business school, they had some in the undergraduate college of arts and sciences. And so I just took them all. And I think it was maybe like junior year where I, where I actually had like my first like startup idea. And it was actually, it's funny, I've had a few startups reach out to me now as an investor that have been kind of similar concept to this. But at the time it was called Intercloset and it was basically like peer to peer rentals for fashion clothing. So the idea was, you know, there's always this modality of women being like, hey, I want to borrow this top or hey, I want to borrow this dress. Like, oh my God, like we're going out, like let's switch clothes and all that kind of community that happens around clothing and kind of figuring out like what could be the technology to power that as there's this also this massive shift in, you know, peer-to-peer social commerce and local commerce at the time. But yeah, no, didn't do anything with it other than, you know, start learning about entrepreneurship, you know, start doing, you know, little pitch competitions and stuff and got really involved in Vanderbilt's Entrepreneurship Society. I would say that's probably when I first got the bug where I was like, oh my God, I definitely see myself as an entrepreneur because it took me a while to figure out like as a creative, what part of business could resonate with like all of, the, you know, kind of that that childhood piece, right? Like every when I was younger, I would draw all the time. And the only things my mom would put in front of me were like fashion books because she was a technical designer. She worked at like Tommy Hilfiger, Liz Claiborne, like Calvin Klein, like all these big brands. And so like the only option I ever saw for myself was like doing something in fashion. Like I never thought like outside of that until I started learning more about entrepreneurship. And I was like, wow, this is extremely crea- creative. And I've always been a very solution oriented person. And the confluence of being able to be creative and how you solve new problems or identify new problems in a unique way, I think, is the core of entrepreneurship. So that's probably like how I got interested in it. And then the technology piece that took a while for me to even really like wrap my head around is, you know, a non-technical sort of like founder in that time period for sure. Got it. And I'm sure we'll learn later on in this conversation that that fashion bug did not go away. It's still very much here and present and showed itself throughout your life experiences. But now let's get into what is cultivation capital? I mean, some people may be aware, some people may not. For those who don't know, how would you describe cultivation capital? What is your VC thesis and who is and is not the right founder to be reaching out to you? Because like you said, in the beginning, you have sort of a different approach. You're not your typical VC. So talk to us about all of those things. Yeah, of course. So I'll start with cultivation. We're an early stage venture fund. For us, we actually have five different investment focuses. So we have teams that will invest in healthcare and life sciences, geospatial technology, Midwest seed stage deals, as well as agriculture tech fund. And then I spent all my time on what we call like our tech funds team. And that's really focused on early series A companies in enterprise SaaS. So that's anything that could have anywhere near like 1 million in ARR recurring business model revenue streams. And for us, we invest, you know, kind of outside the coast. So what we say is like to invest in undercapitalized geographies. So Nashville is a great example you know, ecosystems where there are founders doing awesome things who might have been historically very bootstrapped or historically they have not had access to capital locally. And so how can we apply this community driven approach to ecosystem building so that founders in these, you know, undercapitalized geographies know that there are VCs in town that should be on their radar that can, you know, provide pathways to not just raising a really, um, you know, strong Series A, but make introductions to Series B investors, et cetera. And in terms of our investment thesis, I mean, I think what's unique about us is we really lean into founders that are really good at sales. I think a lot of times you'll hear VCs that are more product oriented or more technical focused. And so they might not have the same expectations around like where the revenue is at because they are so bullish on what the product could be. I think what's interesting about us is like if you're so focused on the sales, it's really easy to remove kind of any potential biases that might come into play. Right. Because if you're only going to be excited about product, it's a very, you know, 
there's a lot of room for where biases could influence what type of founders you gravitate towards and how you even kind of just narrow down and filter in some ways becomes, you know, biased. But I think since we're so laser focused on metrics, being data driven, you know, we have a good example of what, you know, our archetype founder looks like. And it is, you know, someone who can either be that go-to sales leader, someone who's, you know, scaled the business as founder-led direct sales, you know, good point of product market fit. And is now we're coming in to help them build out that kind of sales team and institutionalize what that process could be at scale. And so I think that's really unique. And then I guess the last part of your question was, you know, what founders shouldn't reach out to me? I don't know if I like that question per se, but what I always tell people is, look, like we don't invest in consumer. Um, so that's probably not the best fit. But that being said, you know, if you're building an enterprise business and, you know, you're earlier than 1 million ARR, like think through like the timing of when to reach out to people. Like I'll meet with anyone early enough because I think it's, you know, I always want to be helpful when I can be. But sometimes like too early is too early. If you're at 300K ARR and you know like the earliest we usually might do is like 700K, just know that we're probably looking at deals that are in the 1 million ARR perspective already. So it's then you're competing at a timing perspective that doesn't really make your business stand out. So that's what I would say there. But then I think like, I don't know, my email inbox is always open. Like I try and tell people (laughs) this all the time. Like you don't need a warm intro to reach out to me. And that's how I do venture much differently. I've been in rooms where people like, well, you know, they need a warm intro before reaching out. I'm like, nope, (laughs) it's just my email is right on my LinkedIn. My email, I feel like is probably at this point all over the internet because so many, (laughs) I get so many cold emails. But if an email is addressed to me, like I'm always going to respond to it. The only times I won't respond is if you're sending something that's like to the, you know, Hi, Mr. Man, like probably not respond to that email or I will like there are examples I have. So, yeah, I really do respond to all cold emails for sure. It's really interesting, especially since it's something that has come up on this podcast before about being responsive to people reaching out. So it's a value that we definitely share. Want to unpack that a little bit. And I think there's a little bit more room to dig just a little bit deeper. So ARR, annual recurring revenue, that's not just sales, that's sales that are predictable for the year. And when you say enterprise SaaS, what does that mean? Uh, because selling to businesses uh, at scale is a very different procurement process, very different sales pipeline and strategy. If I'm starting my company now and I'm having a choice between B2B, B2C, I'm trying to figure that out. Could you just talk a little bit more about the significance of opting for an enterprise SaaS strategy? Yeah, of course. And I think this is a really good question. So a lot of times when people don't realize you could build a really successful enterprise SaaS company that sells into SMBs. Like SMBs, the sales cycles are going to be shorter. At that point, it's a volume and execution play. You know, selling into large enterprises, those sales cycles are going to be so slow. If you want to just go out and like, I'm not saying people need to raise a ton of VC money, like you probably don't. But if you did, a good strategy might be like, find a really sticky SMB use case where one, you know, they're very, very in desperate need. Like it's a really core, urgent, immediate problem. And then two, just like find more people like that, that are identifying your product is really sticky and just like land and expand, not necessarily with these SMBs and like a true kind of enterprise route, but like maybe different geographies or tertiary markets or like find ways to just kind of tackle SMB. And then naturally the confluence of what happens right after is that, you know, these larger enterprises or mid-market companies are going to be like, oh, we've heard of this company. Why haven't we looked into adding this product to our tech stack? And then it, and that's how you can start kind of getting to those larger enterprise customers. And, and at that point, you know, if you have really strong reputation in the market with potentially, you know, SMBs, et cetera, those sales cycles will be much quicker. It won't be like these arduous like RFP processes. So yeah, I'm, I'm not saying everyone needs to build a B2B business because obviously there's great consumer companies out there that are drastically changing the world for the better. But I think it's figuring out, like I always tell founders, like the best example and use case that comes to mind is Slack, right? Like Slack in the beginning, you know, was core B2B. They just created so much stickiness with the end user being consumers and all these companies are paying for the comp- for everyone to have Slack because everyone loves it. And then you create this organic stickiness that, you know, 
creates a flywheel approach. So now almost every consumer, even, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, the Luddites all have Slack. And I think to that point, you know, that goes to show like you can still build a really strong consumer product and just have enterprises pay for it. Right. Like Slack is a really strong use case of that. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I think it's something that just being exposed to it can expand people's thinking. By the way, SMB, small, medium sized businesses, that's what we're talking about. OK, cool. So another since we're in the sort of education and professorial kind of like <laughs> spirit here, maybe you could talk about now just how venture capitalists raise money, how you're making money, because that largely informs how you invest and every fund is a little bit differently. You don't have to get into the specifics, but if I'm listening to this now and I am sort of pre 300 ARR, what do I need to know about your business model as a venture capital fund that will help me get to that uh, investment stage where you'd be interested in us? Yeah, of course. And I think it's funny. I actually used to take acting classes back in New York. And one of the things my acting instructor always would say is like, you have to understand people's intention and that applies to not just acting, right? Like that applies to everything. And I would take it one layer deeper. It's like not just their intentions, but what are the, their incentives? And like anytime, you know, I'm working with the founder or, you know, working with my team, it's like, okay, not just understanding people's intentions, one layer deeper, like what's their incentive? And this question goes to show like, okay, as you're a founder thinking about which funds you should reach out to, like one, like identify their intentions, right? Like most funds will either raise from, you know, institutional LPs and to that end, their expectations as it relates to, you know, exit outcomes, you know, are going to be really high, really high standards of what success looks like. Funds that are raising from high net worth individuals, it's the same deal, but they might be a little more risk averse in the sense that, you know, they're just trying to guarantee really strong returns for these kind of local high net worth families in their ecosystem, as opposed to institutional investors where, you know, it's really hard to build up track record to even get to raising from institutional investors. So kind of the bar and the standard of what, you know, a venture capitalist track record has to look like to, you know, raise from high net worth individuals versus institutional investors, that's a really different dynamic. So understanding like what are their incentives, you know, everyone will always quote and say, venture capitalists are just trying to at least get to a 10x return on their investment. That's a good like way of pointing yourself due north. And what I say with that is as a founder, of course, like the revenue piece is really huge, but you also kind of have to understand within who you're selling to, if these are customers that at scale, you sell to every customer in, in that universe you've created or that larger market opportunity, is it enough to warrant a really strong exit outcome? And so if you say, for example, to me, hey, you know, like I want my business to be a public company one day, it's like, okay, like walk me through like what are the paths that other public companies in that space have taken to build a strong defensible moat at scale? And how many customers do you need? You know, if you're only selling into SMBs and maybe it's, I don't know, let's say you're selling into, you know, small, medium-sized garden gardeners. Like, I'm guessing that's probably not a big enough market opportunity to build a public company. I could be wrong, but love for someone to prove me wrong. But, like, figuring out, like, how many of those core, like, target customers that see a ton of product stickiness in what you're building actually exist is how you can kind of understand, is my business right for venture capital? And then from there, drilling that down to, like, hey, at scale... This is how I get to 1 million in ARR, how many customers it takes. Like if you're pre 300K ARR, all you really need to do is kind of fine tune what it takes to arrive at product market fit, I think to raise like a really strong like pre-seed or seed round. And I think most investors like do invest like maybe probably like one step before me will probably invest in pre-revenue businesses if you really have a strong understanding of one, like your sales pipeline. So like if you're telling me, hey, like I have 300K in ARR, but I have like 4 million in pipeline and anticipate that all converting at least by like Q4 of this year, I'm probably still going to keep talking with you because that's a really high level of conviction you have and really high conviction, not just in your pipeline, 
but of who your customer is and how sticky this could be with them. And then I think the other piece of that too is like if you have any proof of like ability to upsell to those 300K ARR, upsell is just essentially, you know, let's say going back to the gardener example, <laughs> you are, you know, maybe selling them different sort of gardening tools. And maybe there's, you know, this new gardening tool that you've developed and it is, you know, 500 versus your existing $100 gardening gardening kit. How do you get more of those people that are already buying the $100 kit to now buy the $500 kit and then create predictability and sales repeatability around that? Because you're not just trying to acquire more and more customers again and again, because it's really expensive. You actually want to find ways to ensure the customers you have spend more with you in that moment, or at least over you know the next few months or whatever kind of you project out to be like your customer lifetime value. That's super valuable and kind of ties back into what you were saying earlier about sales efficiency as a value and a really good metric for measuring the likelihood of a successful exit. And by the way, you're going to break this down a little bit more because I think it's important to keep in mind that you as a venture capital fund are largely investing the money of these super large pools of capital from pension funds. So we're in Tennessee and you have some experience in New York from Jersey, but let's just take California as an example. You know, California has teachers and those teachers probably have a pension fund. And that we're talking about, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, your firefighters, you know, your state and city, like local government officials who are paid after they leave and retire because of their service, that fund has to keep paying them. Where is that money coming from? It's coming from the investments they make and a lot more is being allocated toward quote unquote alternative investments like venture capital funds. So just pausing right there, that's that's what we're talking about when we say limited partners and, and institutional investors largely. Now, you brought up something about product market fit, and I heard a recent example where they were saying that product market fit is when about 40% of your customers, if you took that product away, they would, I don't want to say lose their mind, but they would not be able to or want to go back to life before that particular product. <laughs> if you think about some of the products we use every day, if so, imagine someone taking that away. If you feel any pain associated with that, that is probably a sign of product market fit. What do you think about that? How do you view product market fit? Talk about what you're looking for when you see a founder hop in your inbox or your DM or reach out to you or meet you uh, in person. Yeah, of course. And I think that's right. Like the best example is like right now, I'm like, as soon as you said that, I was like, where's my iPhone? <laughs> it's like people are like really attached to their Apple products, right? So like, I think that's a good example. Um, I think in product market fit and SaaS is also unique because there's also this piece of like why investors like SaaS is a few reasons. One, it's super high margin. Two, there's a lot of sales predictability. And then the piece around like dip, digging more into sales predictability, if there is high churn, there's a chance that like product market fit is still not figured out. And I think what people forget sometimes is that, you know, there's and going back to the SMB example for sure. Like <laughs> there's not going to be a lot of sales predictability selling into SMB gardeners, right? Like we know that to be true. And so a lot of times thing that people don't realize, like a consequence of picking, you know, the right market opportunity um, is not just understanding, okay, like, is it a high growth market? You know, are there a lot of, you know, headwinds and tailwinds moving this industry forward, but it's also understanding are these good customers to sell sell to, you know, are they predictable in terms of how they allocate funds? You know, are they, you know, potentially a high churn industry? Like, I don't know, for example, like selling into restaurants, like restaurants are, you know, high turnover in terms of employees. Anytime you're selling into an industry that has high turnover, there's risk that the person that is your advocate and the person who's you know running kind of this sales process internally for their for your customer is just gonna leave. And so it's understanding and identifying too, like, is this a good market to sell into? Which you'd be surprised. So many founders don't want to accept kind of that hard truth. And it's okay if you're selling into a market that's hard to sell into. But as an investor, I have to know that you're aware of that. And if you refuse to accept that you're selling into like potentially difficult, I say in air quotes, customers, 
that's gonna probably mean that it's not a fit because it shows that you're not able you're not able to really constantly assess the risk profile um, of your customers, which directly ties back to like how you build out scalability of sales, how you project out your business from a financials perspective, and then how how you even think about you know, projections around churn and the assumptions that inform them. Because you're basically telling me like, hey, you know, these are difficult people to sell into, but I think it'll be okay. It's probably not going to be okay. And you probably have to have some strategies and tactics in advance to make sure that you find ways to create true stickiness with them, right? Like product stickiness doesn't work if you're losing your key, you know, customer advocate on the other side of the table because it's a high turnover industry. Wow, you're really in your flow. I feel like the portfolio is getting better just by sitting here talking with you for sure. Also, just want to point out, because this is a global podcast, that turnover can mean different things depending on the country that you're in. So over here, not such a great thing. That means you're losing people. That's kind of what churn means as well. But in the UK and other places, turnover actually means revenue. It actually means how many sales you're making. So just want to make that distinction if you're, you're elsewhere. So you grew up in Jersey. And have since developed a really blossomed uh, your network over time. You came down here in the South uh, as a northerner, went back to New York, made a name for yourself up there. And now you're back here in Nashville. Uh, you mentioned your experiences overseas. So your network has just been expanded and will likely continue to grow. Who in your personal network, though? has provided some essential value to you that you really didn't expect. I mean, when you're in these spaces of business and finance and and all of these investors are around you, you would expect everybody's asking you, how can I be helpful? But who is in your personal network that has provided essential value to you where you really weren't counting on that? I think, you know, this is not necessarily a professional network person, but my, my grandmother on my mother's side, I think has probably been the biggest influence on everything I do as an investor. And, you know, her background is nothing related to finance. She was just, you know, a really strong kind of pioneer in her organization and just a really, you know, religious woman. But the way that she navigated and moved through life was about community, empathy, how to build relationships with other people, how to stay open-minded, you know, the desire kind of to travel and to, you know, experience kind of this international world with a different point of view. I feel like she instilled in me in a very young age. I think even, you know, she died when I was in college. I think it was maybe a year before she passed away. She did this awesome trip to Fiji with her organization. And, you know, <laughs> looking back, it's like she must have been at least 82 when she went. And it was, you know, no big deal. She was obviously super excited, but she wasn't, you know, worried about traveling or anything to that capacity. She's fearless. I think kind of that boldness and that audacity to be open-minded, but also do things differently informs how I approach venture. And it's kind of my like North Star in the sense that, you know, venture has been done a very specific way for a very long period of time. And, you know, there are times where I'll say, hey, like, yeah, cold email me and people be on panels or people like don't want to hear that. And they want to, you know, shut that down and they get, you know, somewhat upset about it. And at the end of the day, I think you have to do what's authentic to you. And when I think about my role in VC, you know, my personal mission is to do VC differently, to democratize capital or access to capital for, you know, founders, you know, who look like me and who come from, you know, underrepresented backgrounds and haven't historically been represented in venture, haven't even, you know, grown up knowing, you know, what growing up in a tech ecosystem even looks like, right? And so when I think about just what informs everything that I do, I feel like definitely, I would say like my grandma for sure. Wow, that's special. Nothing like the love of a grandparent. Yeah. There's really nothing like that. It's almost pure love. You don't have the same parenting <laughs> kind of barrier locked in there. So this is this is good. So staying on this topic a little bit more, now we want to kind of get into your family life more generally. And oftentimes when you start entering these more competitive spaces, it can feel as though the only option is to be more or less alienated from the people you love and care about in order to like be competitive in these spaces. But uh, we want to consider something else. So in what ways 
specifically positive ways has this journey impacted your family life? Yeah, of course. I think especially since my parents, you know, both very like working working class, middle class people, I think you know, my mom, my dad, like they still really don't understand what I do. But I think to that end, I think persistency is what resonates strongly with them. And, you know, I path into VC is never necessarily easy for anyone. And so I think the resiliency that they saw when I was, you know, at home during COVID with them, you know, interviewing, you know, doing all this kind of, you know, part-time work for different venture funds all during the daytime, working on all kind of my operator stuff, um, back in kind of retail that really kind of blew their mind and it showcased, it showcased to them, like, I'm really serious about this. I'm going to make it happen regardless of the circumstances. And I think that really strongly resonated with them. So I think if any, I would say the positive way that they view me now is that they see a different version of me that's no longer like super creative, but is more so like, I hate to say like down to business, but like more business oriented. Obviously, you know, my background as an operator is super business oriented, not on the creative side, but I think they still like during that time, I still was working in fashion. So the creative component still really resonated with them. My mom is a creative, you know, my dad is definitely less creative, but definitely doesn't, you know, identify with kind of a finance sort of background at all. And I think it's been really cool, though, to see the level of kind of respect for that resiliency that's come out of just watching me, you know, do things, you know, and make it happen. So that's been pretty cool. (laughs) Awesome. So I'm glad you mentioned fashion again, because this question is about kind of putting together the optimal sort of co-founder or co-founder team. And, you know, teams generally, you know, it comes with its challenges, but also it can be an advantage in a lot of ways in case somebody goes down or has different skill sets, much like an outfit might, right? With fashion, like, you know, sometimes things go a little bit better when they're matched with certain things. So if you were constructing a co-founder, uh, you can keep with this fashionable metaphor. What is something that you would want to make sure was included in that that would be rare to find? I mean, I don't want to talk only about sales. So it's a co-founder or a co-founding team? Like I have one person or two? Two. And this includes me or doesn't include me? You're not in it. Oh, I'm not in it. Okay. So I think if it was two, I'd probably choose one, a deeply technical person and when I say deeply technical, I mean like someone who has an engineering background, they can build an MVP product themselves. And probably the second one would be someone who could be a really strong sales leader. And I mean, ideal scenario, you find someone who's both, but I think it's extremely rare. And when you find those people that are extremely both, believe me, I will like really go that extra mile to make something happen because I think that's how rare I think it is to find someone who has a really strong technical background. It's very rare that you see someone who's deeply technical that's good at actually like doing a product demo and understands what needs to happen to really convert a customer and kind of refine a sales process. But the ability to lead uh, and direct sales initiatives and like build up that really strong sales momentum in the earliest, earliest days, the learnings of that, that you can then instill down when you start hiring more people, building out a sales team, it goes like, I would say a thousand X in terms of impact. And we see it every time, It every time. And I think what people don't realize sometimes when you try and have the, maybe a two team, Two, let's say there's two co-founders and neither of them is a salesperson. What ends up happening is you're not going to see that sales efficiency in the earliest days. You're not going to see that super high growth that's going to attract investors. And so that's, that's the downside of it. But I know that's definitely specific to us. I've heard of funds that will be like, oh, we'll add a salesperson, you know, later, um, and are kind of okay with that. But I do think there has to be someone in the core team that can really sell when it's just them too. I love hearing that because we are working on different materials. One is a book. I mean, this podcast is one avenue to convey 
what it means to be a value-add investor. And maybe that's you coming on board as an early employee or a co-founder even because you're putting your money in there. Maybe that is included in in the term value-add investor. But one of the skill sets that we emphasize is sales or negotiations and really more so closing than sales because a lot of people sell all day long, but they're not necessarily closing deals, which is, I think, what you're getting at. Closing deals. (laughs) Uh, A metaphor that I heard that I really like is that, you know, if you have children and a lot of people in our community do, then, you know, you have babies, you have children. They don't sell. They close. Right. Like they, they, they sell, they sell, but they're closing on their parents. Often, At least I did when I was a kid and I'm sure it was the same for you. So I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, but let's stay on the topic of like artistic expression a little bit. And this is a question that I really like because I feel like there are a lot of uh, similarities in between, you know, artists and entrepreneurs in terms of how they reach their optimal performance, like their flow, right? So we're wondering for you, like, who helps you get in your flow and which artist sort of most inspires your lifestyle and also maybe your approach to investing? I'll probably, I already anticipate being canceled for this, but I would say probably my favorite artist is still kind of Kanye West. I think Kanye West is a really good example. And I always, anytime anyone asks me for advice, I always send them this article. It's by Sam Altman and it's um, How to Be Successful. Have you read it? Oh, you need to check it out. A plus plus. I read this. I reread this article probably once at least a month. And in it, there's like this one section where he talks about the first time he met Elon Musk, and he said what shocked him was his self confidence. And like, you know, if you think about it, it's like self belief is such a critical part to achieving you know, really strong success because so many people are going to constantly tell you no. And as soon as you start trying to do something drastically different even more people are going to try and tell you no. And so like, if you, you, to stay on the path, to stay resilient, to stay in it, to stay persistent, you have to just kind of like start like barreling through the nose a little bit for lack of a better word and just letting them kind of like roll off you. And I think of Kanye West as the greatest example of that. So anytime I would say probably the two times when I'm in flow state, one is usually when I'm working out and I'm lately, I only exclusively listen to Kanye West when working out. And then the second time is when I'm cooking. I think there is an art to cooking that definitely gets me into that flow state. But usually when I'm cooking, I actually listen to like French cafe music, which is very random. I've never been to France. Ironically, my mom did live in France when she was younger for a little bit. But yeah, it, and I don't speak French either. So who knows? Who knows? <laughs> the method to the madness. I say those probably my two times I'm in flow state. And I'd say the Kanye West component. I know, obviously, like he has tremendous, you know, health issues, for lack of a better word, and I'm very cognizant of that. But I think if you separate that from just his art and his output, he is a case great case example of where, you know, self-belief and tremendous self-belief can get you to different heights and as it relates back to resilience and persistence at scale. Now, that is some honesty and vulnerability there, which we can appreciate. I think the documentary will expand your outlook, especially on the earlier versions of Kanye. So I think it's a fitting example that self-confidence is very, very clear. So that's a good thing. So now I want to kind of get into your return to Nashville a little bit and what got you excited about Nashville and and this place in particular in the startup scene, because it has been growing aggressively, for lack of a better phrasing, uh, here in even in the last 12 months. And you have been a huge part of that in terms of organizing this ecosystem. You know, uh, I'm sure there are many other ways, but particularly with the Sunday Tennis Club that you form for, you know, venture capital uh, folks and investors and founders uh, in the area, even people who were visiting. I think we had a a friend uh, come in from Austin, Texas, who enjoyed themselves there, and I'm sure there are others. So talk a little bit more about what is happening in Nashville. Why was it, you know, ranked by National Geographic as the number one destination for people? Why are startups moving here? Why is there's so much excitement around this metropolitan area. I think Nashville is really in its infancy of what it could be. And so I think a lot of people are excited to move here and to build. And so I think that creates a really interesting dynamic because we're kind of starting, it feels in some ways at a blank slate. 
And so I think when people are excited about something new and what it could be, you motivate and inspire a ton of really kind of aspirational um, people who are, you know, motivated to make this city what it could be at its greatest. And so I think that's one of the things that's really cool about Nashville um, in terms of how it attracts, you know, some really awesome and dynamic people. I think right now we're at a unique point where I'm starting to see like more new ecosystems pop up. And I think that'll be really strong. I think when I was here for undergrad, the reason I kind of was nervous about staying and ultimately didn't stay is because I felt like it was still very much dominated by a very specific archetype of what founders should look like and what they should be, potentially a healthcare founder, probably, you know, (laughs) white cisgender man, for lack of a better word. Um, and you know, that's not me. So (laughs) I didn't really see a place here, but I'm hoping and hopeful and optimistic that this ecosystem is becoming more diverse as more and more people start, you know, launching events. I think when I first moved here, it seemed like there was only a few people hosting events. And that was super weird to me. I was like, this is not how it should be. There should be events almost every night. Everyone should be having events. Because if only a few people are having events, no one is going to be meeting different types of people. There isn't necessarily going to be guaranteed diversity. And there need, we need to like get rid of this old guard sort of culture of Nashville, right? Like there should probably not be any startup events where you have to email someone to get an invite, right? Like things should just be open and inclusive. And I'm really optimistic that like now we're starting to see that come into pass. And once you start making things more open, more inclusive, the scalability of them becomes a lot more immense. Because if something is only invite only, there's never going to be one, probably new people that might not have heard about it. So you're going to see all the same people again and again at these events. And what ends up happening is, you know, you're you're not going to have a lot of exciting momentum about getting more people involved, which is what how an ecosystem and a community grows, right? Like it shouldn't be any one person's events, it should be our events. Like how can we get more people to all of these open um, and more inclusive events? And I'm optimistic that that's happening. So it's pretty cool to see. And I think, you know, Tennessee Tennis is a great example of, you know, one of the things where anytime someone reaches out to me, I'm like, yeah, just join. Like it's, again, you don't need a warm intro. Just (laughs) I'm all over the internet in terms of my email address, my Instagram you know, people will reach out about tennis on Instagram DMs and I'll respond. Like it's not everything in, I hope, in kind of what the national ecosystem can be, should be for everyone. And that's kind of where I'm coming from in terms of my perspective. And I'm excited that more people seem to agree with that and are aligned. You can feel it when you enter the city, even the first time where I was interviewing here for a job. I just, I felt it as soon as I got into the city. I think it's unique to Nashville. And what I've found is that people like the fact that there is more talent like you move into the city, very open to that, at least in the networks, in the communities that I have been fortunate to find myself in. And they want it. They, you know, Nashville sees itself as a global world-class city. And I think, like you said, it's still very early on, but the energy is definitely here. So that's super cool. Now to kind of flip that question on its head a little bit, if you had to leave Nashville and go to another startup ecosystem other than Silicon Valley, which ecosystem would that be? What would be your next stop? I definitely would say LA. I think LA is a great example of an ecosystem that feels tremendously diverse, tremendously open. Everything LA is doing, I think I am hopeful that Nashville can do because I think Austin in some ways still does try to do this. But Austin, you know, if you think about how Austin kind of came up, there is definitely a, a bit of an old guard culture there just in terms of all the exits that happen, the people who have the wealth, and the people who, you know, might be hesitant to kind of spread that wealth into, you know, new communities. And so thinking back of like, okay, like what is... Uh, what could be like a really diverse and inclusive startup ecosystem at scale to make Nashville that? I think LA is probably the best example. People also don't know this, but Indianapolis has done some really cool stuff in terms of having BC funds that are almost investing like every stage of the life cycle. So it's almost creates this massive pipeline opportunity for investors in town, but also creates this really cool opportunity where you can never feel like you have to move. I think that's the one thing that kind of Nashville suffers from a little bit. People will feel like they don't have capital or access to capital 
locally. And so then they'll move and relocate their co- their company somewhere else. Or they might feel that they, they don't have access to enough technical talent or access to enough, you know, sales talent. But I think Indianapolis, because they, you know, now have funds investing at every stage, they also have this awesome flywheel of now we have all these great operators who have, you know, been at a startup that has had an exit. We have all these operators who maybe are now angel investors because they were at that startup that just exited. Or now we also have, you know, all these founders who have been through the course and want to give back and build community and help the next generation of founders. And so it's all these bits and pieces. People don't really talk about this a lot. I don't know why. I, I Personally, I've never even been to Indianapolis, but I've spoken with a lot of people there. And I'm like, if Nashville can do what y'all are doing, we'd be arriving. Like we'd be A++. So that's another really good example. I don't see myself moving to Indianapolis, but that being said, yeah, probably LA would be where I would move because LA and Indianapolis, I think both are two really good examples. Those are cool. And I think they might be first, at least as of today that folks have mentioned on the podcast. So that's super cool. LA is growing. It's a huge ecosystem in Indianapolis slept on, but maybe not for very long as more and more folks talk about what's going on there. That's super cool. Uh, you have mentioned several times on this podcast that you've switched it up a little bit, you know, along your journey, along the path. But could you talk about a pivot that you think changed your career? I mean, I'm sure you come across founders and you're just sort of hoping or waiting or anticipating that at one point they figured something out and had the courage to go in a different direction. Can you think about a time where that happened to you and just talk to everybody listening about a pivot that you think changed your career? I mean, I think the biggest pivot was really kind of in high school, I used to, like I said, like growing up, I always saw myself as doing creative things and not to say that's never going to happen or like completely out the window, but like I, this whole idea of like me as this businesswoman really came from the inspiration of just, you know, having a really close like family friend mentor in high school that I saw, you know, at the time was running like General Atlantic, doing really awesome stuff in business. And I, you know, really came to admire that path and saw, you know, women are doing awesome things in business. And, you know, at the, especially I think when you think about like growth stage and pee and all of that, it's obviously a very different dynamic, but it just takes seeing representation in one shape or form and someone on the other side telling you like you could have this path to develop that sense of self-belief that I think is really critical to, you know, taking kind of that pivot, right? Because, you know, like I said, like when I was younger, I'd spend most of my time outside of school, either drawing, singing, dancing, and then I did theater camp over the summers. So for someone to say, hey, Alana's going to be, a, you know, a successful businesswoman later in life. I don't know if I would have thought that until I really got to kind of high school and started learning more about myself and the path that I wanted to see myself on. And starting to see more representation, people like me doing really awesome stuff, or people who look like me doing really awesome stuff, rather. And so I think that is probably the biggest pivot. I think, you know, there's aspects of investing that's still very creative. So I don't think like, oh, like I'm not a creative at all. And I'd say a ton of my friends are also creative. So it's definitely not a departure or pivot from that. But I do, probably that's the biggest moment where I kind of was like, okay, I need to really start understanding what it means to navigate these different business settings, you know, get together a resume, start interning here, make sure that, you know, I'm doing everything I can to build out my skill set, you know, refining my writing skills, you know, making sure that I'm constantly networking, like something a lot of people don't know about me, but I, everyone says they love networking. I started networking like day one of freshman year of college. And it's because I knew in my head, I was like, okay, this is a piece that my mentor had mentioned. Like she has a book called like meet 100 people or, and it's like, okay, that same book. It's like, how do you constantly make sure you're putting yourself in situations to meet people who could inspire you and, and, you know, motivate that type of, you know, momentum shift in how you see yourself, but like what you could really be and how you could achieve success for yourself independently, you know? And so I think that, yeah, like networking and kind of the relation to business and how I could, you know, navigate ultimately onto the finance side of things, like that whole 
piece really started with just, you know, understanding that kind of key pivot from, you know, you could be creative on that and like you still could really excel in business and this is how you do it and having kind of a mentor to guide that. That is super cool. Networking is key. And Gary Stewart recently met him with Founder Tribes. He's having some event, uh, which may happen before you hear this, but asked me to serve on the panel on your network is your net worth. And I'm wondering if you believe that, like if that's true. And could you just speak to that briefly on what that even means? Because oftentimes we're about to ask about cash, which is why I want to segue into this. But how do you feel about that? Yeah, no, I agree 1000%. I think for me, the moments in my life that have shocked me the most have been how impressive of a network that I've been able to build just by cold emailing people. And it's so funny because everyone's so against cold emails. If you think about the nature of sales, like direct sales, like (laughs) it's a cold email. Like that's how it all starts in like outbound momentum, right? Like obviously you want to be strategic about it, but even on the flip side, you know, investors sometimes have to cold email founders too. Like it's not a crazy concept, but yeah, I think definitely your network is your network. What I always tell people to be strategic though, when you send out a cold email, the one thing that I really don't respond well to if it is if there's a cold email, there's not a lot of context of why you're reaching out and there's not any context on what the ask is. So anytime that I'm reaching out to someone, you know, make it specific. If you want to just truly get to know them and have a 30 minute chat, ask them for that. If you want to apply to a job at their company, ask them about it. If you want to, because a lot of times these things don't really have to be a meeting. (laughs) And that's the one thing that I always encourage people to like, if you ask for something and it's not a meeting, don't get frustrated. They're answering your question, right? Like, and it's more efficient. And so, yeah, I think your network is definitely your net worth. That applies to everything. It doesn't just apply to investing. It applies to how you approach, you know, building out your customers, your customers and, you know, getting really strong sales. Like if you are a founder that's been in this space for a long period of time and you're telling me you have no existing customers in your network, that's going to blow my mind because I'm going to be like, okay, like, how are you going to find them? Do you know where to find them? How much does it cost you to find them? Is it free to find them? Do you have some hack into finding them? Because (laughs) that's going to be hard. And so I think that, and it also applies to even not just on the sales piece, but like when you're thinking about, okay, like now I've scaled up my business to X amount of revenue and I, you know, I'm hoping to plan for a strategic exit. Okay. Do you know any strategic companies that could acquire you? And if not, how did you go about building out that network before you needed to call them up, right? Because you can network with anyone very casually these days over Zoom, and it's and it's very efficient. Its ease of access is extremely low. And so how do you find ways to build connective tissue with these people before you need them is the biggest piece of why network equals net worth. Because if you're waiting to kind of hit them up when you need something, that's too late. You just said a lot right there. Uh, it's consistent with what we've heard uh, in other places about giving first. I think making your ask specific is is a really good insight because if you write a cold email and there's not a question mark somewhere in that email, you got to ask yourself, what? why am I doing this? And I had to learn this early on. You know, uh, there's a tendency to come up with a good message and send it to a lot of people, which is spam, right? But when you figure out what is my why and what is the why for I'm reaching out to this specific person. You're more intentional about it. And that quote unquote hit rate is going to be a lot higher. I would think um, when people see you put that thought into it. So I'm glad you asked that question. And if you are right, then you are going to grow your cash. So we ask founders when they're on the podcast, if they want to run a billion dollar company, although there's a very different, it is very different to have an enterprise value of a billion dollars and access to a billion dollars in assets that you can deploy. So this question is for you on the investor side. Would you want to run a billion dollar fund? Why or why not? This is kind of a hot take, I think. But I, my gut tells me that most people do want to run a billion dollar fund. And probably the only people that don't are ones that probably, I'd say, maybe two co- two cohorts. One, people later in life that have already achieved substantial success 
and they're kind of doing this as a second act. And they may, <laughs> I've heard these people even say like, hey, I retire to work at XYZ Fund. Those people, I'm sure, don't want to run a billion dollar fund because it's going to be a lot of work. And then I think the other second cohort that probably doesn't want to are kind of people that don't have the self-conviction that they themselves can go out and raise a billion dollar fund. I think about this often because I definitely see myself in the first cohort. I wouldn't say I see myself in the second cohort either, but I think something that is invariably tied to venture that I constantly reconcile with is so many people around you, like it'll be colleagues, peers, you know, people that you're on a cap table with have these massive egos and I get it, right? Like they've achieved a ton of success. You know, I'm the new person in the room. So, you know, I'm still humble, spoke, soaking everything up like a sponge. But I look to them and I'm wondering, like, in 20 plus years, I certainly don't hope to be have this type of ego, right? Like, that's just not how I was raised. That's not what I believe in. And I'm constantly like, okay, well, if I'm around all these people, how do you not? And it's like, okay, how do you constantly rebalance yourself? outside of the venture landscape and realize, hey, this is, you know, in some ways, more art than science. And you have to be able to understand it all comes down to relationships and people. And that's kind of what matters most at its core. So like, if you think about the scalability and the impact of having a billion dollar fund and what it could do kind of towards kind of just my mission of changing venture, that's to me what grounds me and gives me the not necessarily the self-confidence to say, oh, I can go out and raise that, but it gives me the personal motivation that this would have significant impact for the people that I want to help. And so I'll do what it takes to make it happen. And I think that's different than having the ego to be like, oh, next year I'm going to go out and raise a billion dollar fund. Because that's certainly not who I am and that's not who I ever want to be. But people are like that. And I think being able to reconcile that there are all types of characters in venture and just because, you know, you have to cross paths or move alongside these people doesn't mean that it should impact or influence how you navigate. The landscape has been probably the one thing I would say younger me would find coolest about me now. Like, despite being very new to VC, I moved through it as myself. And there have been times where people challenge that and been like, well, you know, you're probably doing too many panels or maybe you're doing too many pitch competitions. And it's like, well, until it's, you know, not working, I'm going to keep trying it out and we'll see how it goes because I'm constantly have that humility, which informs that I'm able to adapt. I'm able to switch things up, able to pivot. You know, if, for example, maybe like, let's say a few months down the road, cold emails haven't worked at all. Probably I will switch it up and stop taking cold emails. But like the last deal I just submitted a term sheet for was a, through a, came in through a cold email. And it's like, oh, so I guess maybe it does work. <laughs> like, maybe it does. Like, if it's not working, trust and believe. I'm always humble enough to switch things up, but it seems to be working, so I'm just going to keep doing me. You better stay on your principles. <laughs> I love that when you can, you can validate uh, <laughs> your new approach, because I do think there are a lot more ways to be in this game than the ways that have been the case for the last 40 years. Speaking of changing it, I sent you some links before this podcast episode about the app launch parties, but I'll go ahead and tee it up a little bit more. The app launch parties were events that we started doing in Harlem to really kind of do what you were saying earlier about bringing people together who really didn't know each other uh, around a product from a founder that they could connect with in a way that wasn't very overly structured in a pitch competition like way. It was kind of chilled, kind of like, you know wine and hors d'oeuvres and all that. But at the end, after the founder gives their short speech, there's an opportunity to ask questions. And we had, you know, venture capitalists like yourself, angel investors, aspiring angel investors, other founders, people who just showed up and didn't really know what was there. And then all of a sudden they're in the front of the room asking the questions. Uh, but eventually there's going to be a final question because we can't go on forever. So if you were handed the mic to ask that final question, that last question, what would you ask of a founder? You don't know uh, right now in this question what industry they're in, but let's say they fit your thesis. What question are you going to ask them to end the night? Probably just like, what do they do for fun? And hopefully, like, do they play tennis? I think, you know, and that's not meant to be a plug. What I've found the most that founders really resonate with is just more like humanistic conversations, getting to know them as a person, right? Like, so many founders will just like text me and stuff. And 
I respond to text. Everyone responds to text quickly. Like, why do we don't have to talk over email if it's quicker through text? Like, again, like, I'm just trying to be, you know, an easy person to access. And I think that resonates with a lot of people. And to that end, you know, the biggest, I think, challenge first-time founders face is there's a really strong or really high mountain to climb, which is figuring out, like, not just work-life balance, but kind of founder health and founder wellness. And I think you give everything of yourself to your business. And then if you have a family, the rest goes to your family. And then it's like, how much more time do you have to prioritize like yourself and make sure you're good and you're, you know, not just surviving, but thriving. And like, how do you instill best practices to make sure you do have time for yourself? Founder burnout is extremely real. And, you know, there, I haven't seen directly like any, cases of it because I think usually I ask people like just how are you doing and it's you'd be surprised like so people will open up if you ask them how they're doing if you ask them like you know what do you do for fun they'll tell you like it's again they're not doing anything for fun okay hopefully (laughs) you know hopefully outside of your business you're finding some time for yourself to do you know even just like small even if it's a small mundane task like making sure that you have time for yourself I feel like it's really critical and key and this industry puts a lot of stress on people to kind of run themselves to the ground. And I think there is a balance. And Sam Altman kind of talks about this in that same article. It's like all successful successful people have to work really hard. Like that's just a fact. Like I do agree with that wholeheartedly. But I think finding the route, the right balance of what keeps you in it, not just motivated, but in it mentally where you're not. you're you're just not going to burn out because you have figured out the rhythm, the right balance, the right momentum to keep yourself so focused, but still balanced. I think that's a really hard challenge. And maybe it's not that you do something for fun. Maybe it's that on Mondays, you don't, and this is what I do on Mondays, I don't take any external meetings. So on Mondays, and it's funny, a lot of times (laughs) I'll make an, I'll make an exception sometimes, but a lot of times people will respond pretty well to that. They're like, good for you. Like, you know, Monday's my time to work on and execute either long form stuff or get through emails or maybe like work on different internal projects. And that's kind of my time. Like I have internal meetings throughout the day, but again, internal meetings, it's not the same kind of outward kind of focus. And so I think, yeah, finding that balance is really critical, really key. And for me, that balance, you know, I felt very close to approaching burnout few weeks ago and I was like I need to start incorporating just something that's fun and lighthearted. and tennis has been that I felt like that's when I started getting people together around tennis and it's like it's hard not to have fun even if you're not good at tennis it's really hard to not have fun and I think people having fun in that moment building connections being lighthearted, I see a lot of value in that it's good. And it's just making me think mind is, is racing from this interview and it's been super valuable. Does it feel like we've come to sort of the last question here, which we which we have? And you may have said this in other ways throughout, uh, but maybe just leave us with this. What is the most valuable thing that you feel like you do for your founders and the people that you're trying to help? I think the most valuable thing that I do for my founders is probably and it's kind of funny it goes back to sales but anytime that I'm trying to win a deal and if it's a competitive deal I'll go above and beyond to get them introductions to potential customers and I think in the context of being additive as an investor when I say sales obviously it's you know introductions to customers but there's also that piece of helping them like fill out the rest of the round right helping them with introductions to other investors and there have been times where even some of our LPs have reached out and I've done, I, I've helped, you know, get some of our LPs directly to invest in, you know, one of our exist, a uh, new portfolio company. And so I think that speaks volumes to not just your conviction in the company, but the lens that you'll go. Because at the end of the day, you should, whenever I'm evaluating investment, it's kind of like, would I, obviously this is a hypothetical question, but it's like, would you potentially leave your job? to work for this company. Like, do you care that much about what they're doing? Are you that aligned with the mission? You would up and leave today and go work for them. That should be like the bar in terms of how you level set if this is a company that you want to spend time with because you're going to have to support them 
in all types of ways throughout the life of the company. Like that's your job as an investor. And if you don't have that level of conviction that you want to help them in the earliest days, probably not going to have that like two years out when maybe they might have missed, you know, one of their budget numbers and, you know, they're about to go out for a B, but they're a little nervous. Like you're not going to be able to help them, you know, two years down the line in that scenario if you weren't eager to help them in the earliest days when you're just getting to know them and building their relationship. Like this should be the most exciting time to help them with intros to customers, intros to other funds. Sometimes you can even help them with introductions to key hires, right? Like so much of the earliest days of a startup come down to team. And especially last year, like recruiting was super hard. I think this year people are starting to see maybe with what's going on in the market, things will level out, but it's still really difficult to get top talent. And if you can help them find great people that they can, you know, hopefully add to their team. Again, that's another way to be really additive. I think that speaks whirlwinds to the impact that you could have as that investor on their cap table. It doesn't get much better than that as a sales pitch for your fund. That is a lot. And I think it's super cool that you're moving through the trust to loyalty, really to love, because what you're talking about is really having that level of conviction to where you are really going to go to bat for them uh, in a variety of ways. So thank you for this interview. It's been really good. And now we're going to ask you sort of our bonus question, although it seems like this is going to be a layup for you and or I guess a volley, easy volley for you to keep with the tennis metaphor. What is the easiest way to get in touch with you? I mean, you've said, hey, I'm accessible. Reach out to me. I will respond cold, even if I don't know you. Uh, But if I'm listening to this podcast right now and I have a very compelling reason to do so, and I really want to get a response from you in 24 hours, let's say, what is the best way to do that as long as it's not a Monday? So Monday, I do respond to emails. I just won't take an external meeting. And again, like I said, I there's always, a, with VCs, there's exceptions to every rule, which is another probably not the best thing about investors. I would say the best way to reach out to me is email. And then my email is just A-M-A-N-N at cultivationcapital.com. Cool. Email is my big time preferred met mode of communication. Same. You're, you're going to get a good good response via email. And I can attest to that. You are very good about clearing your emails and providing, you know, really good responses. So again, thank you for your time today. I've learned a ton and I think it's very useful for our community because we hear a lot of founders come on and they have very compelling ideas. It's good to see your perspective on what it looks like when you're actually writing the check and for those people who are looking to receive that check and What are the best ways to do it? And if you're listening to this, you likely are going to learn how to do that a little bit better as a consequence of today's conversation with Alana. Uh, But again, thank you with that. We will leave you with the last word. Interesting. I would say, you know, add me on LinkedIn or my social handles are It's Alana Man if you want to follow me elsewhere. Cool. Again, thank you. And with that, we will bid you adieu until next week. Thanks for joining this week on Diverse Tech Founders with Abraham J. Williamson. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. You can do it right now. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us too. Thanks again.